Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old-fashioned active allocators of capital. Who is leading the charge? Who is disrupting? Who is being disrupted? How does the frenetic political and economic backdrop feed into the investment process and really understand why we invest in the first place? In this episode of the podcast, I'm talking to Bill Dinning, our Chief Investment Officer and Chair of our Asset Allocation Committee. Have you ever wondered why the starting salary of a graduate in the UK hasn't changed in the last 10 years? Meanwhile, over the same time frame, the cost of tuition fees has gone up ninefold. The cost of a flat in London has doubled. Why has anyone who owns stuff, equities, bonds, London property, done incredibly well? Meanwhile, learners and earners have suffered. Couple this with a weak or indeed negative economic outlook. Are we experiencing a new type of stagflation. This is the first of a two-part episode with Bill, where we're going to discuss this idea. In the first episode, we're going to cover the causes of inflation, the damaging effects it can have on the general population, and how policymakers respond. This is the Wine Best podcast. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. Bill Denning, Chief Investment Officer here at Waverton, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Bill, what is inflation and why is it important to investment managers? Well, I I think most people think of inflation as, as rising prices for the goods that they buy. So the official statistics tend to uh, talk about the consumer price index or the retail price index, which are just two different ways of measuring the same thing, which is aimed very much at, uh, at individuals and at families. And it's trying to judge whether or not the basket of goods they might buy from a supermarket or from a department store or from a clothing shop. How expensive are those goods relative to how expensive they were, for example, a year ago? <clears throat> and and I think people of a certain age, and I probably count to be that age, uh, worry about inflation because when one was growing up uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, inflation was the dominant thing. It was, it was the thing that had the biggest influence on public policy, and it had enormous implications for politics uh, because it, it led to a, a feeling that there needed to be a change away from the post-war consensus on both sides of the Atlantic. So let's take us back to the 60s and 70s. Where did inflation get to? Well, uh, it was certainly north of 20% in the UK. The, one of the issues with inflation is that you can obviously have a spike in the price of a good for various reasons. For example, in the 70s, one of the things that contributed to broader inflation was a spike in the price of oil. There were two different spikes in the price of oil. Uh, where the countries in the oil-producing uh, bloc, uh, commonly known as OPEC, because uh, all the countries tended to be in OPEC, uh, that's not so true now, but they were then, decided that they, they felt that, that oil was an under underpriced commodity. And so you, you had some of the inflation was prompted by that oil shock, but what, 
one of the things that becomes a, a problem is if that inflation becomes pervasive. And the, the textbook way in which it becomes pervasive is that because you and your family have gone out shopping and you suddenly go, my God, it's bloody expensive to buy uh, petrol. Uh, I can't believe how expensive that Sainsbury's or Waitrose or Tesco or wherever you shop, shop is. And people then say, I can't afford this anymore. And then they say, I need to have higher wages to offset what's happening in my shopping. And uh, they the prevalence of inflation tends to come from people demanding higher wages. And that was easier to do in the 60s and 70s when workforces were much more unionized, which meant they were much better organized than they are today. Um, so traditionally, I think inflation is is, is seen as, as the price of goods, but there are lots of other types of inflation as well. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the other types. So we talked about the CPI and RPI um, inflation you touched on wage inflation. What about asset price inflation? Which arguably over the last 10 years, probably longer, we've seen or we've experienced a period of hyper-asset inflation. Yeah. yeah, so one of the corollaries to inflation being a problem, in the, particularly in the 70s, uh, but to some extent also in the late 60s, was that it was, it, inflation was high, but the economy wasn't doing very well. So this is when uh, a British politician named Joe Grimmond coined the phrase stagflation, which meant stagnant economy, but inflation in, uh, evident in, in, in prices. And stagflation was, was very much how people thought about what was going on in the, in the economy in the 1970s. So not much real economic growth, but, but, but higher prices. And that, that, that meant that you had high price inflation and high unemployment, which is a very bad combination. Um, today, you're right, we, we don't really have much of an increase in the price of goods. There are lots of uh, forces around in the global economy that keep the price of goods lower. There's much more competition. Uh, the visibility of pricing is greater. If you don't like the price of something on a website, you go to another website and find it cheaper. There are even websites that compare all the prices for you and you can just go for the cheapest. But there is um, a slightly different situation, as you say, where a lot of asset prices uh, have been rising quite significantly. And that's not just true of the stock market. It's also been true for house prices. So we've actually been, we've written about this and we've talked about it quite a bit recently. We, we've sort of termed this the new stagflation. So the new stagflation isn't a stagnant economy and rising prices of goods. It's a stagnant economy and rising prices of assets. Which is more divisive, <coughs> the new stagflation, assets uh, versus income, or um, the old stagflation, uh, you know, traditional... Um, they, I, think, I think the reason that I think terminate, calling it the new stagflation, one of the reasons one wanted to do that was precisely because the old stagflation was extremely damaging, had uh, very significant uh, political impacts um, and policy impacts. And I think the new stagflation might as well, but they're going to be slightly different. So one of the issues that's very much in the forefront of our thinking at the moment is, is a generational issue. So the old stagflation sort of hit everybody, really, whether you were going to school, whether you were at work, whether you were a pensioner, 
Everybody has to buy food. Most people have to buy petrol. Most people have to buy other goods. Uh, and everybody was affected by the inflation. And uh, the, um, the, the working age population was affected by the stagnant economy. So unemployment, as I said, was going up. The new stagflation is, is slightly different, but the, 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 not, everybody's, not everybody's affected equally by rises in asset prices. Um, Some benefit from it. I mean, yeah, exactly. Owns, <coughs> exactly. Has done very well. Exactly, and and so those who have been uh, in the fortunate position, uh, uh, let's just take the period since two thousand and nine and the beginning of the recovery from the the, the financial shock and the the, the so called Great Recession. If you've been fortunate enough to own a house or if you've been fortunate enough to own or have exposure to the stock market, perhaps through a pension plan, uh, perhaps through a savings account that you've got somewhere, you uh, have done quite nicely. Thank you very much. If you aren't in a position to have owned those assets, then it has become a lot more difficult to afford those assets today than it was 11 years ago. And... That, in particular, I think, is one of the factors that's affecting a sort of generational divide. And, and the generational divide isn't just here in the UK. I think it's, it's broader than that. But if we just think about it here in the UK, the generational divide, to a some extent, has always really been there on housing. How it, there are a lot of people who live in the UK and there aren't enough houses. That's been a the housing That's a UK based uh, problem. The UK, yeah. the UK doesn't happen in Germany, for example. Exactly. The UK has a particular problem on housing. In fact, one of my many old bosses, Dan Kate Barker, wrote a, a very influential paper on how to solve the housing crisis about 15 years ago. And that paper is extremely relevant still because actually her policy prescription is very sensible, but no government has had the courage to do it, which means that we continue to have a housing shortage. <clears throat> if you add on to that, though, the fact that the stock market, actually in the stock market in the UK, relative to a lot of the markets around the world, hasn't done as well. But if the stock, if, you, if you've got exposure to the stock market, if you've got exposure uh, to the housing market, then you, you are at least asset rich. Um, if you're younger, you, you, it's going to be harder to do that. So we all know about the bank of mum and dad. Uh, we all know about, we all probably have anecdotes about friends uh, getting on the property ladder with the help of their parents. Um, my three children all know that I will help them uh, buy property if they ask me, but all the, all the property will have wheelchair access. So that's my way of dealing with the generational divide. Turning tack a little bit, we um, talked about the difference, I suppose, between the relative... Uh, and absolute pain um, that inflation can bring. So, for example, the, the absolute pain in the 70s where you know everyone was suffering as um, CPI and RPI increased. Meanwhile, in the noughties and after the, you know, uh, after the 2008 crisis, arguably there's been a relative argument. So anyone who owns stuff hasn't um, suffered as much as anyone who has earned stuff. How then do politicians approach that dichotomy? Is there going to have to be a, a moment where we have a massive redistribution of wealth? And if so, what are the policy leaders? I, well, I think, I think the, the thing that makes me think that that is possible is actually um, the fact that the uh, COVID-19 crisis has exacerbated this. So, so going in, so so six months ago, 
the young uh, were feeling probably a little bit financially insecure, um, but they are more likely to have been hit adversely by the government response to COVID-19 than the the older are. So to give you a couple of statistics, uh, the tourism and leisure industry in this country, so that's restaurants and bars and theatres and entertainment and all that, uh, is about 11% of the economy. Um, What's remarkable, though, is that that 11% looks a little different than the rest of the economy when we look at who works in it. So 39% of the employees in tourism and leisure in this country, 39% are under the age of 30. In every other industry in this country, in every other business in this country, only 22% of the employees are under 30. So the most adversely affected part of the economy by the lockdown policies and by people voluntarily not doing things like traveling or going out as much, the worst affected part of the economy is disproportionately where the young work. So I think going back to the analogy with the 60s and 70s, one of the problems uh, going forward may well be that um, the, the young are disproportionately Uh, in the camp of being unemployed. And I think that there will be some pressure to try and do things that uh, slightly try and sort of level the playing field a little bit. So what could that be? Well, you could certainly tax assets, um, but that's not necessarily... Um, that's not necessarily going to help. Driving down the price of assets for everybody doesn't actually help the overall economy. It's more about redistribution than it is about uh, reducing. So if you're sitting next to Dominic Cummings and thinking about policies, um, what and, and maybe wealth tax aside, what more would you be in favour of, I suppose? Um, well, I, I think there are one or two things that that need that you've got to think are, have got to be on the agenda. Tuition fees has been an extremely divisive mm-hmm. uh, policy uh, over the last ten years. Although um, although it was introduced uh, in in the late two thousands, it became a huge issue. Obviously, after the coalition government in two thousand and ten, when the Liberal Democrats, who'd been violently opposed to tuition fees, did a U turn, <clears throat> which arguably they never really recovered from. Um, in fact, you could make an argument. Uh, without tuition fees, we wouldn't have had Brexit. Yes, I would like to hear that argument. So without the, tuition fees, we wouldn't have got Brexit. So the, the, it, the argument is as follows. Uh, We're going to return to inflation in a minute, but, but it, I want to hear this. Well, <laughs> with tuition fees, although they had already been introduced, the only way they were able to do the coalition government in 2000. 10 was for the Liberal Democrats to do the U-turn on tuition fees. That allowed the coalition government uh, to be formed and uh, the coalition government, uh, by the standards of the people in the government, was moderately successful. And going into the 2015 election, uh, the Conservatives under David Cameron in particular uh, were pretty confident that there was going to be another coalition government. And I don't think the Liberal Democrats saw the wipeout that effectively... Uh, meant that uh, the Conservatives, somewhat to Cameron's surprise, had a majority. Cameron had gone into that campaign saying that if he got a majority, he'd have a Brexit referendum, but he didn't really expect to get a majority. So the tuition fee debacle 
cost the Liberal Democrats a huge sway that they, contributed to costing the Liberal Democrats a huge sway that they vote in 2015, created a majority government, Conservative government, which had promised a referendum, and so the referendum took place. Interestingly, but one could argue that the result of the referendum was a direct result, or a, a, the result of the referendum was because there had been such division sown by the seeds um, of ultra-cheap monetary policy, which we're going to come on to, um, and this disconnection between assets and income. There's no doubt at all that that um, protest votes uh, are have become more common, and they've become more common in, in a big way, i.e. that people generally, I think, do feel slightly cross, concerned, insecure, angry, however you want to think about it. And that's true on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and I think uh, you're right that the, the, the economic backdrop ultimately is probably a bigger influence. But going back to the tuition fees, the reason I, I went on with that ramble there is if we're thinking about what sort of policies might a government introduce to try and start to level the playing field, tuition fees are an issue, um, particularly now at £9,000 per annum. Uh, that's quite a lot of money. And uh, if you compare it internationally, it's a lot of money. Um, if you are, for example, as my daughter was for a year, uh, being educated in the state of California, uh, the largest state in the union, if you go to a state university in California, you pay uh, around $6,500 per annum, uh, which even at the current depressed exchange rate is about £5,000. And um, there are many fine universities in the state system, including places like Berkeley and uh, UCLA. So uh, I think that is a, a reasonably comparable analogy. Um, we're quite expensive. <clears throat> and um, yeah, maybe we need to relook, maybe we need to, to, to take another look at tuition fees. The other one that I think is potentially should be on the agenda is the inheritance tax is paid by the people who survive. It's not paid by the people who just passed away. And if we're talking about a generational issue where there is wealth in a family, but it is in the older generation, uh, it may be not very equitable for those who don't have that wealth, but I think inheritance tax might need to be looked at as well. So inheritance, inheritance tax and tuition fees, they would be your policy? Well, they, they, those two things would be I'm, I'm deliberately being controversial, yeah. but they would have a direct benefit for a lot of people. Let's go. Let's actually go back to tuition and um, a university education in the UK, because actually I think this is not a bad example of you know stealth hyperinflation. Because if you go back, let's say 10, 15 years, you had one in ten, one in seven people going to university. Um, you paid nothing, or maybe a thousand pounds a um, a year for your tuition. You roll forward, you know, 10, 15 years, you now pay nine thousand. You have one in three, one in five um, people are now going to university. So in other words, the cost has gone up by a factor of nine. The value has gone down. And then if you then couple that with the, what the job mar jobs market looks like, haven't we seen hyperinflation in a university degree unto itself? Um, I, well, I think it's even worse than that. So when I went to university, I was the recipient of a full grant, which meant that I received about £3,000 uh, per year to go to university. Um, that, if you inflate it up by the inflation rate since then using RPI, uh, is over £12,000. 
So in today's money, I was given £12,000 a year to go to university. My children are paying £9,000 a year for the same privilege. So it's even worse than you said. And that's also why I think that is an area where um, my own feeling is that actually people of my generation are more worried and slightly angry about tuition fees relative to the younger generation. I think the younger generation's got used to it. Certainly my younger son is extremely livid that anybody would not get have to pay tuition fees given that he's been through the system and he has done. Um, <clears throat> whereas I just compare it to my own situation and think, well, this is actually, you know, this, and particularly when I think about it in the context of internationally, uh, you know, it was one thing for that when it was three thousand a year. For nine thousand a year, um, I definitely think there's a value for money problem. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, and our guest this week, Bill Dinning. If you'd like more information on any of the content discussed in this podcast, please go to our website at waverton.co.uk. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe to the show and rate it and tell your friends. Thank you.